As we come to our time in the Word of God again this Sunday morning, I want to remind you of a characteristic of understanding the Bible as a whole and understand that there is a a deposit. It is a depository of little pockets of jewels, little pockets of wealth and riches that are uh, hidden within the scriptures. And I don't mean in some mysterious coded way, but they're there, and theologians call that progressive revelation. In terms of the Old Testament, from the beginning of the books of Moses on down through all of the writings and the various kinds of writings in the Old Testament, whether it's narrative or history or poetry or prophetic, down through the ages, there is this, what, what we call a progress or an ever-intensifying light. And when we come to the New Testament, of course, the light's turned on. Years ago, I, I'm not much of an electrician. I'm worse of an electrician even than I am a plumber. And, uh, but I had to change out this switch, and it was just a light switch. And Kathy and I were talking. It's the light in the family room where we're all at. And she and I talked, and I said, I wonder if I could figure it out. I don't know much about it, but I'm going to try to install one of those rheostats instead of an ordinary light switch. And a rheostat is just a knob. You probably have some at home. And you turn it, and the light progressively gets brighter and brighter and brighter until it's fully turned clockwise, and then the light's on full blast. In many ways, progressive revelation down through the Old Testament does that for us. It slowly turns the rheostat on, and the light gets brighter and brighter until we come to the New Testament. And now we have the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. He is the light of the world. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness could not comprehend it. He was that true light and is that true light. So this idea gives some clue or insight into what we're going to do for the next few minutes. Now, if I were to say to you, in the next few minutes as I bring this message, there are going to be little clues within my message. And if you listen carefully and catch those clues, they will guide you to a certain spot somewhere on our church campus where, we, where you will find a small brown paper bag, and in that brown paper bag, you will find $10,000 cash. You suppose you'd perk up and listen to the message today? <laughs> of course. And yet, when we walk through the campus and listen to the prophets and the judges and the authors and the seers and the poets of the Old Testament, from time to time they give us a clue of where the treasure really is, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And um, 
this morning is a case in point. We're going to look at an Old Testament psalm. And the psalm itself begins with these words. And you'll see them, I think, up on the overhead. The psalm begins with, My heart overflows with a good theme. I address my verses to the king. That's how the psalm begins. My heart is overflowing with this theme. And so I'm going to address my verses to the king. Um, that's the beginning of Psalm 45. And if you have your Bible, you'll need to open it to Psalm 45 this morning. This is among several of the psalms that we would call messianic psalms, meaning tucked away inside the psalms is such clear references to the Lord Jesus Christ. This is perhaps a thousand years before his birth. If this was written in the time of David, about a thousand years. If it was written more in the times of the sons of Asaph, maybe six, seven hundred years. Nevertheless, it's several centuries old before the birth of Christ. And so the Holy Spirit comes upon this psalmist. And what happens in this psalm is like any of the Old Testament clues. He's writing about a royal wedding. And he speaks about the king who is the bridegroom. And he speaks about the bride. And both are described in this great psalm. And as he does so, what you would think at first glance that this is a psalm about an, a Far Eastern or Middle Eastern wedding. A king has been betrothed to some, uh, perhaps a Persian princess or something like that. And there's a wedding being planned and the culture is involved in this psalm. And we're not going to dig too much into that because more than anything else, I want you to see that this is a psalm about Christ and about his bride. And I want you to see this with me. And it's, it's unmistakable because in the psalm, we know it's about Christ because there are quotes from this psalm directly applied to Jesus Christ in the New Testament, especially in the first chapter of the book of Hebrews. And so we know it's about him. So how can this be? How can this old piece of poetry have Jesus Christ within it a thousand years before he's even born? How can that be? Well, we know all scripture is inspired by God and that men of old, the prophets of old, did not write their own thoughts, but they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so we have Christ within this beautiful psalm. And all today's message is about, sometimes I have a message with lots of application. You need to do this. We need to adjust our lives in this way. Here's some pointers for this or that. But this is one of those mornings where all we're really wanting to do is savor and relish and take in what this psalm is saying. And so the title of today's message is A Royal Wedding and gospel invitation as seen in Psalm 45, and then quickly we will look at the end of the message at Revelation 19. And so let's get started here. 
Um, From his overflowing heart, the psalmist is inspired by the Holy Spirit into a, what we would call a twofold description. He first describes the bridegroom, the king, and then he describes and speaks of the bride and what's going on with the bride. And I want you to see this. So I'm going to read to start with um, down through verse 9. And this is the first part of the description And then we'll walk through this. So just for now, just follow with me in your Bible. My heart overflows with a good theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is the pen of a a ready writer. And then he changes. He's introducing the psalm. And now you'll notice he is directly speaking to the king or of the king. So he's not just talking about him, he's talking to this king, this great bridegroom. Verse 2, and this is what he says, You are fairer than the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and your majesty. And in your majesty, ride on victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome things. Your arrows are sharp. The peoples fall under you. Your arrows are in the heart of the king's enemies. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy above your fellows. All your garments are fragrant with myrrh and aloes and and cassia. Out of ivory palaces, stringed instruments have made you glad. King's daughters are among your noble ladies. At your right hand stands the queen in gold from over. In this first section, what we have is a description of the royal bridegroom. And without going too deeply into it, I want you to just appreciate uh, three aspects of this bridegroom that are, that are brought forth. This good theme that's in the heart of the psalmist, he says in this psalm, basically, I am writing and expressing my heart that's filled with the beauty of his person and then the greatness of his power and then the splendor of his kingdom. You notice there in verse 2, You are fairer than the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Over and over in the New Testament, as we read of Christ, we see the people's response. You remember when he first introduced himself in Nazareth, where he had grown up. He went into the synagogue following that 40 days that he was in the wilderness. 
and then he comes out of the wilderness in the fullness and power of the Holy Spirit, and he goes into Nazareth, and he goes into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he's asked to be the reader that day. And he comes forward and unrolls the scroll to, saw, to Isaiah 61, and there he reads, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, to proclaim uh, freedom or liberty to the captives, to open blind eyes, etc. And it says that when he had read the scroll, he rolled it back up and handed it to the attendant, and Jesus went and sat down. And then he said, this day, this passage of scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And it says, all who were in the synagogue were fastened on Christ, fixed upon him, because the words and the power with which he spoke them was so riveting, so captivating, that all in the synagogue were awestruck. And then that's where unbelief came in, and there was an uproar, and the next thing you know, they're trying to do away with him. When the officials from, from the, the Pharisees through the Roman government sent officials to seize Christ in the seventh chapter of John's gospel, they went to seize him and he was preaching and speaking. And grace was so upon his words and, and what he taught that they didn't do anything. They got caught up in what he was teaching and saying, and when they returned to the authorities, they were saying, well, where is he? You were sent on a task. And the only answer they could give was, never a man spoke like this man. And it says in the Gospel of Luke, the common people heard him <coughs> gladly. And every one of us in this room who have come to know Jesus, we have read the word, and we have found his words precious, have we not? His promises to us, his comforts to us, his assurance to us. In the world you have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world, and through your union with me and faith in me, you overcome the world as well. How beautiful his words. You know, I've carried this book around with me for a long time. And in fact, when I first met Kathy, back before we were married, Kathy was involved in the planning of the, the annual student-sponsored mission um, conference at the college where we attended. And it was a big event. There was going to be, you know, a lot of people there, uh, a big great big auditorium and all kinds of people there, and she was in charge of planning the whole thing. And uh, she, I was, she asked me uh, about a month ahead, hey, would you, would you be the person who does a reading? You can choose anything you want to to read at the missions conference. And of course, the whole mission conference was, of course, a fundraiser. We were raising money to send to missionaries and and they were out serving the Lord. And as I prayed and thought about what should I share with them uh, on that night, and I was thinking to myself, I want to say something about what motivates us 
to share Christ with others? What motivates? What is the fuel that burns in the, in, in the tank and the souls of those missionaries who are willing to go forth? What is it that moves them out? It's more than just a sense of duty. It's more than just an obligation. It's more than just raw obedience to the Great Commission. There has to be more than that. There has to be something in there. There must be this, this great theme the psalmist is talking about. My heart overflows with a good theme. And so I had had this book, and uh, on the 8th of, of August, on the 8th of August, 1637, Samuel Rutherford wrote a letter to one of his parishioners. Now, Samuel Rutherford had been in the great expulsion in Scotland where thousands of pastors were by force, military force, removed from their churches, and many of them who refused to conform or return to Catholicism were imprisoned. Some were martyred, some were burned, some were hung. Samuel Rutherford was imprisoned in Aberdeen, Scotland. And this man, when you read the letters of Samuel Rutherford, he's one of the sweetest souls I've ever read. And I read this portion. I'm not going to read it all to you, but I just, Samuel Rutherford, all he got to have was a little bit of bread and water each day but they let him have his Bible. <laughs> and they let him have some writing paper so he could send letters. And so for seven or eight years, that's what he did. But listen to Samuel, listen to Samuel Rutherford's heart. In light of verse two, you are fairer than the sons of men. And he writes, oh, what a fair one. What an only one. What an excellent, lovely one is our Jesus. Put the beauty of 10,000, thousand worlds of paradises like the Garden of Eden into one. Put all the trees and flowers and smells and colors and tastes, all joys, all sweetness, all loveliness in one. Oh, what a fair and excellent thing that would be. And yet, it would be less to that fair and dearest well-beloved Christ than all, than one drop of rain to the whole of the seas, rivers, lakes, fountains of 10,000 earths. Christ. And then he said at the end of his writing, and this is, I think, quite profound for those lovers of Christ among us, he says, all men speak well of Christ who have been with him. Men and angels who know him will say more than I can do, but they will also think more of him than they can say. End of quote. Samuel Rutherford and his burning heart of love and devotion to Christ and his longing to be with the church. I guess, Kath and I have experienced a little bit of that along with you in the past year, especially those first three months when we weren't even meeting. 
and worshiping together and looking to Christ together. Eight years in Aberdeen prison, and, but that's what was burning in his heart. And every letter is like that in some way or another. So I recommend the letters of Samuel Rutherford. They're still in print and you can find them probably through Banner of Truth Trust if you're interested in reading them. It's a radiant book. But what is this beauty of his person? What is it that's so attractive? Are we only talking about the external, like the way King David was spoken of, that he was a handsome man? Are we talking about Joseph, who was a very handsome man and had to flee for his own soul to get away from Potiphar's wife and ended up in prison? Are we talking merely about that kind of beauty or the beauty of a glorious character like no other? At his baptism, Jesus was identifying with man. And there at that baptism, the voice from heaven was heard. You are my beloved son. In you, I am well pleased. At the transfiguration, when he took Peter, James, and John up onto Mount Hermon, or possibly Mount Tabor, the two highest mountains in Israel, there he was transfigured before them, and his face became white and shining brighter than the sun, and the glory of his deity came shining out through his flesh. And again the voice came, This is my beloved son. Only this time it wasn't, I am well pleased with him. It was, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. He's the one you need to listen to whose lips are filled with grace. Well, we must hasten. <laughs> the greatness of his power. And see, this is important for us. As beautiful as Jesus is in character and holiness and meekness, goodness, gentleness, mercy, we mustn't have a lopsided view of Christ because he's also powerful in a way that we cannot begin to conceive. I mean, think of it. All of the ages, from the fall of man in the garden to the last, when Christ comes to deal with the great dragon, the great deceiver, the evil one who corrupts and deceives and brings all of the pain and all of the corruption and all of the cruelty to this world. Do you know what Revelation says? What he, what, when Jesus comes, his power is so incomprehensibly great that instead of going into some cosmic battle with Satan and so on, it just says he spoke a word to him and he was finished. That was it. Just a word. One little word, as Martin Luther wrote in um, A Mighty Fortress in, is Our God, he wrote, one little word will fell him. So even though it seems at times like we're in a world where there is evil on every side and it, we wonder where this, where's all of this heading? Well, we know where it's heading. The word of God has already told us that he will deal with him. And it will be swift and instant and irrevocable. 
our Lord Jesus Christ, the, the greatness of his power. Look at verse 3. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one. In your splendor and your majesty. We're talking about the bridegroom now. We're still talking about the king, the bridegroom. And in your majesty, ride on victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome things. And um, your arrows are sharp. The peoples fall under you. Your arrows are in the heart of the king's enemies. The greatness of his power, his might, his authority. And when we come to the New Testament and read the book of Revelation and we see the evils of the nations and so on in the end times, he is spoken of in this way, that he will come in the fierceness and wrath of the Lamb. So as believers, we must always keep that balanced, right? That he is the very essence of, of gentleness and kindness and compassion and tenderness and grace. Absolutely yes. Come to me, he said, all you that are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. That's one aspect of, of Jesus. But the other is he will come in fury and might and authority, bringing justice. Number three, or the third one, is the splendor of his kingdom. And this is where the New Testament quotes this verse in Hebrews chapter 11, and the, or Hebrews chapter 1, and the whole purpose of Hebrews is to set forth the superiority of the Lord Jesus Christ to all others, that he is in a category all his own, even though he's all man, totally a man, 100% man, yet he is all deity. He is God manifested in the flesh. And so he is a, in a category, singular and all his own. And so it speaks here of his kingdom. Look at verse 6. Your throne, O God. That's speaking directly of Jesus Christ. This Old Testament passage is saying, O God. God, when it directly focuses on Christ. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. And here is the, here is the balance. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God has anointed you with the oil of joy above your fellows. And then again, it speaks of his, something of his character has to be what this is about in the imagery that's here, that his character is so pure and so exquisitely perfect that it's likened to fragrances. 
Verse 8, all your garments are fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. Out of ivory palaces, stringed instruments have made you glad. King's daughters are among your noble ladies, and at your right hand stands the queen. So there is this intermingling between an ancient marriage in the Middle East and the, the, the ultimate wedding in marriage that is yet to come as Christ is being betrothed to his bride. We just sang a few minutes ago, didn't we? The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. She is his new creation by water and the word. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. And with his blood he bought her, and for her life he died. He is in this great season of betrothal where he is gathering a bride that will one day stand in his presence, presented to God the Father, almost as though God the Father is the, the minister who is there to officiate, and his son and his bride are there for consummation. What an incredible picture this is, that God would use this as a picture of Christ and the church. Well, we are really not going to dig into it, except for you can look at it later. Time-wise, I said I really wanted to keep this short. So the next section of the psalm, from verse 10, we'll read it, but I'm just going to let you see kind of a breakdown of, of what's there. Verse 10. Listen, O daughter, give attention and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house. In other words, come away if you're to be my bride. Then the king will desire your beauty because he is your Lord. Bow down to him. The daughter of Tyre will come with a gift. The rich among the people will seek your favor. The king's daughter is, in all, is all glorious within. Her clothing is interwoven with gold. She will be led to the king. This is this picture of the bride being led in a procession to be presented to her bridegroom, the king. It says she will be led to the king, verse 14, in embroidered work. The virgins, like bridesmaids, her companions who follow her will be brought to you. And they will be led forth with gladness and rejoicing. Think of those words right there. Underline them in your mind. They will be led with gladness and rejoicing. They will enter into the king's palace. And then it ends with a kind of benediction. In place of your fathers will be your sons. You shall make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, the peoples will give you thanks forever and ever. John the Baptist came preaching, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus said the same thing, Repent, for the kingdom of God is upon you. I am here. 
And to Nicodemus in his lone interview at night, he said to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. The kingdom and its splendor. The Egyptian empire, where is it now? The great world empire of the Egyptians? The mighty, cruel, and forceful Assyrian empire that once ruled the world? The Persian empire, the Babylonian empire, the Roman empire, where are all those great empires, those great kingdoms, where are they? They've crumbled, haven't they? They're a pile of dust. They're a bygone reality. But here we're told, this king, he will have an eternal kingdom. And in that kingdom will be with him his bride, his bride, his people, the saved of the earth. And so we see in this second description, the description of the royal bride, we see the preparation of the bride, which has been going on century after century here on earth as God is betrothing and drawing people to Christ and preparing them so that one day he will present the church in his presence without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. She will stand clothed in the perfect righteousness of Christ. And then we see the bride being brought to the king in verses 14. She will be led to the king in embroidered work. There she will stand in the bridegroom's presence and realize that he is the Lord God Almighty, the Savior and Lord of heaven and earth. He is the church's bridegroom. And then there is that benediction. Well, does the Bible speak of this royal event? Does it tell us about this royal event? What happens when this occurs? And for that, I just want you to look up on the screen with me. And we're going to read just a few verses as we finish up today. My brothers and sisters, those of you who have entrusted your souls to Christ, you have come to him believing the gospel here is a scene in which one day, now listen to me now, in which one day you will stand amidst this very scene. And you'll lift your voice. And verse 6 tells us, Then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude. In fact, the voice was like the sound of many waters. I've never been to Niagara Falls. Anybody been there? A few of you have. When you stand near the falls, does it make any noise? It does, doesn't it, Lauren? What an apt illustration. This mighty crowd, the great and royal bride who's now been brought into the presence of the king of glory of Jesus Christ where we will be there and we'll see him face to face when we're finally there we will lift our voices this great multitude like the sound of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals 
of thunder, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God the Almighty reigns. And it, it, there's been a few times in our some three decades here in Kettle Falls, we've had a few lightning storms that were quite impressive. I mean, it felt like they were cracking right over our house, if you even here in town. And the windows rattled. You could almost feel the floor move. You could almost feel it inside. You know, your, your liver would quiver when, when it would be so loud. Those mighty peals and cracks of thunder, they just are so expressive of power and authority. And yet, that's what the voice of the bride is likened to as she expresses to herself, to her king, hallelujah, for the Lord God the Almighty reigns. Why is, what's all the hubbub about? Why all of this festivity? Why this celebration? What's going on? Verse 7, let us, they say, rejoice and be glad. Remember I said underline in your mind those two words? Rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready and it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen bright and clean for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints and then he said to me write blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. <laughs> and he said to me, these are true words of God. And John, who's writing this revelation, says, then I fell at his feet. There's an editorial comment here. John's saying, this is what was happening while I saw all this. Then I fell at his feet to worship him. It was an angel, remember, that was showing him these things. But the angel says to me, said to me, do not do that. John, stop that. I mean, John, think of that. The beings that God has established to serve, protect, and watch over and fight for his people are so great that John is so moved as to fall down before this servant of his and begin to worship him this angelic being. And so, then I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. That's what we do in heaven. God alone and his son is worshipped, no one else. And then there is this sort of interpretive little phrase that finishes this clause. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now listen to me. I know we don't think this way. We talk sometimes about, well, we need to witness for Christ. We need to tell others about Jesus. It's the call of the church to proclaim the gospel and continue to 
uh, extol the Lord Jesus and his perfect person and his work? Yes, 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 but listen to me now. When we think about prophecy, we think about the writings that foretell the future. But what this is saying is that you, yourself, dear believer, and your testimony for Christ is the spirit of prophecy. Now, how can that be? Listen, when you study end-time things, it's called the study of eschatology. Eschaton, last things. It means the study of end-time events. And my, what a fascinating study it is these days as we look around. But listen to me. The church, the very existence of the church herself, from heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. And with his blood he bought her, and for her life he died. The church in Kettle Falls, in Colville, in Chewila, in Stevens County, in the state of Washington, all across all 50 states, and off the continent through Canada and out to other continents. The church all over the earth, listen to me now, is a eschatological or an end-time phenomenon. We are the living testimony of Jesus Christ to the world. That's what we are all over the globe. And so when it says the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy, that means we ourselves have become a prophetic message of that coming day when, when the marriage supper of the Lamb will come. And if you read on in that chapter, which I know you'll go right home and do, Read on in that chapter. He girds himself like Psalm 45 talked about, and he comes thundering back to earth in such an incomprehensible authority and power as he returns to earth to set things in order. What a lie. This is real stuff. Now, the wonder of all of this, as I finish, I remember the story of William Wilberforce. He was instrumental in freeing the slaves and stopping the slave market in Britain, which later spread to America. But he had a friend who was a dignitary in the parliament, very intelligent man, and he asked this man if he would go with him to listen to this particular preacher. He was a famous, very powerful, very good preacher. And he went to listen to the preacher, and Wilberforce took his friend, hoping his friend would get converted. And this friend, who was really smart, I mean, super intelligent, according to Wilberforce, he sat through the hour worship service and listened to the sermon. And Wilberforce is sitting there, you know, trying not to be very demonstrative, but he's praying, thinking, man, this gospel could not be clearer. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, his person and his work, and thou shalt be saved. It was so clear and so powerful. And Wilberforce is just chomping at the bit. He knows his buddy's going to get saved. And when the service is over and they left the cathedral and they were on their way back to the buggy, horse and buggy days, as they were on their way back, 
Wilberforce turned to his friend and said, well, what did you think of his preaching? And his response was unforgettable. You know what, William? I haven't a clue what that guy was going on and on about. I have no idea. How do you explain that? What seems so clear, so precious to you and me, the world, they don't get it. And when they look at Jesus Christ, do they see that he's the fairest among 10,000? Do they see the lily of the, of the fields? Do they see the bright and morning star? Do they see the beauty and the excellence of Christ? No. When they think of a cross and the gore and death of a man impaled to that cross, do they see what you and me see? Do they see a man who has taken upon himself all my sins and is dying for me so that I may go free? Is that what the world sees? No. The modern artist who had his art display in New York for several years, you know what his modern art was? It was a picture. A picture of a large uh, pitcher, like a beer pitcher, filled with urine with a cross inserted into the urine. And he won awards from the world for his picture. Is that what we see? Dear believer, is that, what you, is that what the Holy Spirit has taught you about the cross, about our bridegroom, about the one who came from heaven and sought his holy bride? Who, who bought her with his blood and sought her with everything he had. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the very end, to the utmost. Christ, what a Savior. Can I hear an amen? What a Savior. What a day. When our voices are among those mighty, mighty peals of thunder, and we are the ones standing in that crowd singing hallelujah, let us rejoice and be glad for the marriage supper of the Lamb has come. <laughs> Isn't that going to be a great day? Absolutely. Well, like I said, there's nothing to do with this message except just relish it, enjoy it. Thank God for it. And then thank him that you received. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. If you've received the gospel and trusted in Christ, you fall into those who are blessed, God says. Blessed because you've received your invitation and you'll be amongst that throng which no man can number from every tribe and tongue and people. Don't you love these things? And love the Lord. He's so good. Well, I think I'll just have a closing prayer. Would you stand with me? And then we're going to head downstairs and have some fellowship with each other. And, and uh, I'll probably help Terry move a few chairs and 
He's going to do some picture taking for us. So would you join me in prayer? Our Father in heaven, we are a family in Christ together. And it is impossible, Heavenly Father, for me to look out and see my dear brother Rick and his family, son, daughter, grandkids, and them all. How can we as a church family not pause right now and realize that Laurie is there? <laughs> Lord, she's there with you. Just as sure as we're standing here, she is gazing upon your beauty, the beauty of your person, and, and the recognition of the power, the greatness of your power, and the splendor of your kingdom. There she is. Thank you, Lord, that though we grieve, we do not grieve as those who have no hope. We thank you for that coming day. Thank you for Psalm 45. Thank you for hiding that little clue in your progressive revelation. There it is. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. Thank you, Lord. Would you bless our time of fellowship, Lord? Help us not too quickly to just jump to talking about the weather, but to give us real fellowship as we have savored your word for our hearts this morning. Thank you. Thank you for our dear ladies and those who lovingly service again this morning, providing snacks and coffee and and an environment where we can enjoy each other. Thank you for each one. And thank you for Terry and the fun of some photography together this afternoon. Thank you, Lord, for all this. We give you praise and thanks. And look to that day when we will see you face to face. In Jesus' precious and beautiful name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. All right, we'll see you downstairs.